Well, Father, we come before you, and we are grateful to be in the assembly of your people. Lord, I thank you for the saints. I thank you for the work of your work inside of each of them. And Father, this is uh, just a, a refuge where we come together as brothers and sisters to be stimulated to love and good deeds and to prepare us for this great cosmic struggle that we are engaged in. I pray that this message will strengthen our resolve to fight for you and to fight for your kingdom. And I pray for anyone who is perhaps on the fence, perhaps on the outside looking in, that they will understand the great conflict that we participate in and that they will pick a side. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Robert E. Lee was stationed in Texas in February of 1861 as a member of the United States Army. It was during this time that Texas seceded from the Union and his commanding officer enlisted with the Confederacy. What's interesting is Robert E. Lee did not make a decision to join the Confederacy at that point. Instead, he went back to his home in Arlington, Virginia. A few months later, in April, his native Virginia decided to join the Confederacy, and at that point in time, Robert E. Lee had a decision to make. Now, what's fascinating about this is after Texas seceded from the Union, Abraham Lincoln promoted him to the rank of colonel, right? He actually got a promotion in the Union Army, and, and he was being recruited by a very prominent power broker to... Uh, to take the off, uh, I'm sorry, to be promoted to the rank of major general to defend Washington, D.C. against any hostiles. And this is what he told the power broker. He said, Mr. Blair, I look upon secession as anarchy. If I owned the four millions of slaves in the South, I would sacrifice them all to the Union. But how can I draw my sword upon Virginia, my native state? He hated the idea of a civil war and secession, but he also had a hard time imagining how he could take up arms against his native state. After deliberating, going back and forth, he famously decided and tragically decided to join the Confederacy, right? The great conflict forced him to take a side, and he chose poorly. Now, whether you know it or not, you are involved in a great spiritual conflict, one that is unseen by this world. We read about it in Ephesians 6.12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, the conflict is largely unseen, but this conflict is very evident in the Gospel of Luke. When Jesus really began his ministry in earnest, right, he was tempted by the devil. There was spiritual warfare. At the end of the Gospel of Luke, we read about how Satan went into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus Christ. And in the middle, you see skirmishes and battles, including this one in Luke eleven fourteen through twenty three. Now, as he was casting out, now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out. The mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, 
Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now, when you think about the work of Christ, obviously you have the atonement, right? That he died to defeat the power of sin. He died to atone for our sin. But there's also another aspect of the atonement, and that is the defeat of Satan and these dark powers. There is a spiritual conflict in which Jesus was engaged. And what's interesting is he came to make peace, but not peace by passivity. Right? Jesus actually came to war against the powers of darkness, and we see it break out into the open. Now, in the midst of this conflict, Jesus is not necessarily fighting alone. He's recruiting, mustering, and training his followers to continue the war. In fact, we just read some sections on, on the private devotion of Mary and then the call to pray, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then he prays, thy kingdom come. Right? When you say thy kingdom come, that implies that it's not fully present, right? You see, right now there is another kingdom and there is another usurper to this world. You, you think about Robin Hood, right? The whole premise is that Richard the Lionheart is off fighting the Crusades and his, his brother John is, is a usurper who rules as a tyrant over, over England at the time and vigilantes like Robin Hood try to restore the justice, right? In this case, Satan is the usurper. Remember when, when Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness and, and Satan offers him all the kingdoms of the world if he bow down to me? That was a genuine offer. Satan is the ruler of this world. In fact, 1 John 5.19 says, We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And Satan will not relinquish this kingdom without a fight. Now, we may not see it now, but we know that it is going on. We know that there will be a final resolution when Jesus comes back on a war horse to defeat the powers of darkness. But until then, there are two kingdoms at war with each other. And you're either part of one kingdom or the other. And when someone becomes a Christian, they follow the king and they become a part of the kingdom and they engage in the objectives of the kingdom. If Jesus is going to war against another kingdom, his followers join him in the efforts. Does that make sense? And so the question is, whose side are you on? The civil war forced everyone to take a side, didn't it? You couldn't just stand on the sidelines. In the same way, this spiritual conflict forces everyone to take a side. Jesus does not give you the option of being a Switzerland to broker peace in the future. You can't just sit out, see how it turns out, and then decide whose side you're on. You choose this day whose side you are on. 
And this is the argument that Jesus makes as he does battle with this demon, as he does battle against his critics, and as he talks about a future battle against his arch enemy. And the purpose of rehearsing these three battles is to call you to join the battle. Now, many of you have already enlisted. Praise God. May this encourage you to keep fighting the good fight. But there's another group of you who you have ambiguous allegiances. You say you've joined the fight, but you've never picked up your sword. Uh, perhaps you're not quite sure about this whole thing, and you kind of want to see how it turns out. Uh, perhaps the reason why you're here is because you're looking for personal fulfillment, you're looking for friends, but, but what you're actually being called to is more than that. People don't join the army to find a sense of community, do they? Uh, they join the army to fight for a cause, and that is what we are called to do. We are to fight the good fight, and we're looking for fighters. So, the overall question of this will be, Whose side are you on? So we'll set this up by looking at the various battles. The first battle will be the battle against the demon. Look at verse 14. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. Right? We've read about so many exorcisms to this point. They can almost forget about the majesty of this. Right? In this case, you have a mute man, and if you look carefully at the text, you have a mute man and a mute demon. And this says something a little bit about how demons operate. Demons are often ventriloquist, right? They, they control the tongue of the mouth of their host, right? That's why they often will speak words of the demon. This man was so dominated by a mute demon that he became mute himself, and so he was imprisoned in silence. Along comes Jesus, and there's clearly a crowd looking at him. He had various ways of casting out demons. Perhaps he gave a prayer. Perhaps he gave a command. Perhaps he laid his hands on him. We don't know. But what everybody recognizes is that this man who was characterized as mute, who could not speak, had his tongue loosed, came back to his senses, and was to, able to express himself with his own words, with his own tongue. And the whole crowd marveled. This was a display of power. And when we look at the parallel account in Matthew, everyone was speculating, could this be the son of David? Now, did you know that David is the only Old Testament exorcist? David is the only one who exercised demons in the Old Testament. When Saul was afflicted by demons and unclean spirits, it was David who played the harp who was able to soothe him. And so they were making the connection that if, if this man is casting out demons, perhaps he's like David, the son of, he's like the son of David. And they had these hopes because David was, was given a promise that one of his sons would assume, would always be on the throne of Israel. Right? That's the Messiah, the anointed one. And when the Messiah comes back, he will lead a revolution against Rome and all their oppressors, and they'll return to this golden age. And so everyone was excited that perhaps this man can not only cast out demons, but this points to a, 
a greater truth about him, that he is the Messiah. Now, not everyone was excited about this prospect, especially because it was Jesus. And this leads to the battle against his critics. Look at verse 15. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Now, it was not evident in Luke, but it is evident in Matthew. Do you know who was saying this? The Pharisees. The Pharisees were very concerned about Jesus. Because people began to see him as the Messiah. They were starting to rally around him, perhaps follow him. And, but here's the deal. Jesus was doing things that the Pharisees disapproved of, like doing miracles on the Sabbath, which is working on the Sabbath. He was, in their minds at least, violating the core command of the law. And if the people of Israel followed a false Messiah, and they rise up against Rome, Rome would come and crush them, and that would be the end of Israel. Something had to be done. But there was a problem with this public relations conflict. Jesus kept on doing miracles. Notice they, they don't say he's faking this. They understand that Jesus did a genuine miracle. He didn't necessarily make a coin disappear. This was not a magic show. Somebody who was notoriously mute, who had a demon, can now speak so how do you explain how Jesus accomplished this great supernatural act? He did it by making a deal with the devil. He cast out demons with the power of Beelzebul, the prince of demons, who we find out is none other than Satan. So this is the argument. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, and this angel goes by Jesus Christ, right? Get this. They are saying that Jesus is in league with the devil. And instead of these miracles proving that he is the Messiah, they prove that he's with Satan. That's how far they've been gone. That's how hard their hearts are. And so that was one critic the other critic were saying, verse 18, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Okay, Jesus just cast out a demon. What else you got? Right? They, they wanted some additional sign. Now, it's permissible to ask somebody to, to validate the prophetic credentials with a sign that's commanded in the Old Testament. But after he exercises a demon, they say, what else you got? It's like, how much proof do you need? And yet here they are, keeping an open mind, deliberating about whether or not Jesus is the Son of God. We'll see. We need more miracles. And so Jesus pushes back on both of them, primarily that first category, who accuses him of being in league with the devil. He gets a three-pronged attack. He pushes back by saying, one, this is absurd. Verse 17, but he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls right there's an old saying rome was not built in a day right rome was an extraordinarily complicated governmental system 
with layers of administrations and buildings and armies. And it takes a long time to put the whole thing together. That's why keeping the peace was very important because a civil war would destroy it. Now, Satan is the ruler of this world. He assumed power when Adam and Eve fell. And he built a sophisticated world system with lies and deceit and demons to, to basically have the world trapped in darkness to call what is good evil, what is evil good. And he's not going to undo his reign by allowing a wonder worker to take out precious workers. Right? If Satan were to play chess, right, there, there could be a sense where you might give up a pawn to get a rook. Right? There might be some senses where he does allow some demons to be uh, expelled. But Jesus is systematically knocking out demons. He's taking rooks, he's taking queens, he's taking bishops. Not only is Jesus casting out demons, he's giving his followers abilities to cast out demons. And so if Satan is behind this, that would make as much sense as a general taking out his infantry with a sniper rifle. Why would Satan empower Jesus to uh, conduct this all-out assault on his demonic minions where Satan seems to be losing every time? This is patently absurd. Secondly, it, it points to a civil war. And, and the Jews were very sensitive to civil wars, right? Remember the great heights that the kingdom rose to under David and then Solomon? Then what happened? Rehoboam decided to continue the oppression of the northern tribes. The northern tribes broke away and the kingdom was never the same. Or you look at David because of his sin with Bathsheba. The sword would never leave his house and his own son, Absalom, would kill his other sons, right? It was a house divided. Civil war, division, all of that will cause a kingdom to fall. And while Satan is evil, he is not a moron. He would not do this. It's patently absurd. Secondly, Jesus argues that this attack on him, that he's in league with the devil, is inconsistent. Look at verse 20. For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Jesus wasn't the only exorcist in town, right? We read about other exorcists in Acts, for instance. Uh, there would be people who would travel around and try to figure out how to expel demons, and they had various ways of doing so, like pain compliance. Right? That doesn't seem very fun. Or they would have them smell some rotten onion. Or they would call upon a greater spirit to expel the, the lesser spirit. Right? And so the sons of the Pharisees, these good Jewish boys, were doing all of this. And Jesus makes an argument. If they do it by the power of the Holy Spirit, Pharisees, if they can do it by the Holy Spirit, then why can't I? Or conversely, if they're doing it by the power of evil spirits, why aren't you accusing them? Why are you singling me out? Right? You guys are inconsistent here. And your own sons stand against you because there's no way you can answer that question. And then thirdly, this obscures the truth. You see, he says in verse 20, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So Jesus points to the the finger of God. 
Now, you might look at the finger of God and think about a little fly in the pulpit and, and God doing this, you know, just kind of flicking away with his finger like it's an easy thing for him to do. But the finger of God is something that's used in the most famous Old Testament story, right? The story of the exorcist. Oh, not the exorcist. We're talking about demons. It's an honest mistake. The exodus, okay? The exodus. Now, remember... So Moses would appear in Pharaoh's court, say, let my people go. The Pharaoh would say, who is the Lord God that it should obey his voice and let your people go? And remember what he did? He threw the staff down and it became a snake. And do you remember what the magicians did? They did the same thing. He announces the first plague that the Nile would turn to blood. And what do you know? It turns to blood. But remember what the Egyptians did? They did the same thing. Then he calls on frogs to swarm the land, and the magicians did the same thing. But then when it comes to the gnats, the plague of gnats, we read in Exodus 8, 18 through 19, the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast, and the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Sound familiar? So the finger of God is, this is undeniably the work of God. It cannot be counterfeited. And so Jesus is saying, the finger of God, if it is by the finger of God that it cast out demons, which it clearly is, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Remember, this is a battle between two kingdoms. And whenever Jesus pushes back the darkness and expels the reign of Satan in that individual, the kingdom of God has spread to another soul. Now, there's a saying that there could be no V-Day without D-Day, right? For those of you who are familiar with World War II history, V-E Day was March 8, 1945, Victory in Europe Day. But that was not possible without D-Day, June 6, 1944. That's when the Allies got a beachhead and began to grow the resistance of the Western Front, which ultimately broke the Germans. So when Jesus came to earth, he established a beachhead. He began to push back the forces of darkness. Now, in the future, there's going to be a sudden arrival, and that's when the kingdom of God will ultimately come. But he's making it very clear that this thing that you're resisting, you're resisting the finger of God, the clear work of God in your midst, that this kingdom is coming. I am bringing it, and yet you are resisting it. Right? They're choosing the wrong side. And ultimately, Jesus is going to finally, and with finality, defeat his enemy, which we see in verse 21, the battle against his archenemy. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Right, essentially, the, the strong man in his guarded palace is overtaken by the stronger man. Now, one of my favorite movie tropes is the one-man army. You have some supervillain, who lives in an exotic country, has this heavily fortified fortress 
on some plateau with all these natural obstacles. There's a mercenary army. They're all equipped with various technological weapons. And he's always guarding maybe a high-value hostage, right? He's guarding a high-value hostage or maybe some super weapon. And so they send in a one-man army. Could be Captain America. Could be Ethan Hunt. It could be John Rambo. And this one-man army overcomes all obstacles to save the world. Now, I didn't really know it at the time because I kind of like shallow movies myself. But John Rambo is actually a Christ figure. He sheds blood. No, just kidding. But, you know, it, but it is there a... You can have a lot of fun with it, right? He drew first blood. He, you know, Satan started a war. He's finishing it. But, but that's the idea, is that Christ is the one-man army, right? And, and we have different images of Jesus as the gentle shepherd. You know, come to me who are weak and lowly, but Jesus is also a warrior. He's also a general. He's also a king. This world will see Jesus again, and when they do, he's in big, they're in big trouble. Because he will be coming back on a war horse. And not alone, his army will come with him. See, part of the work of Jesus is to recruit and muster an army. And this army will defeat the enemies. Satan has his ring of mercenaries. He has his weapons. But he will be soundly defeated. And what's really interesting is, is there is this invisible war that is going on. And again, as you read the Gospel of Luke, pay attention to it, right? It begins, Jesus' ministry begins with Satan tempting him in the wilderness. You see all these battles all the way until then, right? Where, where Satan's falling like lightning every time a demon is expelled. You see uh, the slander campaign against him where, where Satan has moved the Pharisees so that they believe that he's in league with the devil. And then Judas will betray him. And he does so when he's possessed by Satan, right? There is a spiritual battle that, that just broke out into the open. Now, as I mentioned in Ephesians 6, 12, it, it says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, right? Our enemies are not merely human. There are supernatural forces against us. And, and often when we think about our enemies, you want to think about those liberals or those jihadists or those heretics. But you know what? They have flesh and blood, and that's not what it's talking about here. And those enemies can be redeemed and become our allies, right? There is a certain force of unredeemable spiritual entities that are at war against Christ and his people. In Ephesians 6, 11 through 12, that our, our struggle is against rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, this is not talking about different categories of demons, but they're, they're descriptions of them, right? That they are rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers. They have genuine authority to do genuine work. And just like rulers and authorities can rule this present world, they do in a spiritual sense. You see that they are the uh, powers over this present darkness, right? Darkness does not like the light. It's the polar opposite. People who are unredeemed are children of the darkness versus children of the light. You see that there are spiritual forces in the heavenly places, right? They are unseen. They are invisible, but they are very much present. 
Remember the story of Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 6? Samaria was being surrounded by an invading army. They're all terrified. And, and one of Elijah's prayers said this. He said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man. And he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now, those were the good invisible armies, right? But they're there. There was an unseen angel army. There is an unseen enemy. There are unseen demons. Spiritual warfare, I'm not getting all Frank Peretti on you, okay? But it is real. It is real. Satan really exists. A number of years ago, the late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia was was interviewed by, uh, I think, a reporter for New York Magazine. And his Roman Catholic faith came up, and, and he told this reporter that, I believe in the devil. And the reporter said, isn't it terribly frightening to believe in the devil? And this is what Scalia says. You're looking at me as though I'm weird. Are you so out of touch with most of America, most of which believes in the devil? I mean, Jesus Christ believed in the devil. It's in the Gospels. You travel in circles that are so, so removed from mainstream America that you are appalled that anybody would believe in the devil. Most of mankind has believed in the devil. For all of history, many more intelligent people than you or me have believed in the devil. Right? We're not crazy for believing in the devil. Yeah, in a modernist society, they want you to believe that that devils are as real as the tooth fairy. But if you were the devil, it would make sense that you would want people to believe that you're fiction. Your enemy would want you to believe that he doesn't exist. He would want you to downplay his influence and his power. Uh, he would want you to think that he's not tempting you and he and you're not being turned, it's all your own decision. We live in a very secular world. But, but there is a devil, as Jesus teaches, right? And this devil does have great power. In Revelation chapter 12, we, we read a fascinating account of an angelic battle that John bore witness to. In Revelation 12, 4, Satan is represented by a dragon, and he sweeps away a third of the stars, which are his minions, his demons. And then it's described in verse 7 through 9. Now a war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, a couple of observations. Number one, there's lots of angels and there's lots of demons. And the demons held their own. When you read the account in 2 Kings 19.35 of the slaughter of the Assyrian soldiers, right, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers were, were slaughtered by, by one angel. Right, that's a lot of power. And so here you have angels against demons and it's an epic struggle. They are powerful. At the same time, Satan is defeated in the epic battle. He's powerful, but God is, is more powerful. And 
in his power, he has liberated you from the dark power of the devil. Now, remember when I told you how Satan went into Judas? Luke 22, 3, then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was a member of the 12. And what did Judas do? He betrayed Jesus. He betrayed Jesus. Jesus was then sent to a kangaroo court. He was tried and convicted. His innocence was overlooked by the earthly powers there. He was eventually crucified. And that was probably a day of jubilation for the satanic kingdom, right? They probably declared that it would be a spiritual holiday forever and ever when we finally took hold of our kingdom and pushed away the usurper who they accused of being Jesus. But Jesus actually sealed their fate when he died on the cross, right? Because we know that the wages of sin is death. And the reason why death is in this world is because Satan deceived the first couple into rebelling against God, eating the forbidden fruit, and the curse was placed upon them. And so there is this reality of death, and Satan actually uses this threat of death to control people. You look at all of the false religions, right? People in a famine would be desperate to save their lives. They try praying to Yahweh. That doesn't seem to work, so they pray to Baal, the sky god. It was a false religion designed to save their lives. They felt like they had no choice. Other people see the hopelessness in this world, and they think we're going to die, so eat, drink, and be merry. You only live once. That's a satanically inspired religion. Other people live their lives just trying to escape deep things and the prospect of death, and so they turn to drugs or pornography or alcohol or, or just binge-watching something to just dull their mind. But again, that is Satan using the power of death to control the world. But when Jesus died on the cross, he defeated the power of death by putting death to death because he, the wages of death was placed upon him, Right? But God shows his love for us in that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When he took the death sentence, he died the death you deserve. Instead of you having to die to be separated from God, to endure the wrath of God, the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus, right? That atone for our sins, that means... That when you believe in Jesus, when you join the fight, when you join his kingdom, you don't need to be afraid of death. Did you know that? You don't need to be afraid of death. Because at death, death will usher you into the presence of the king. And you know what? Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But we learn in Romans 16.20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Did you catch that? Your feet, not his feet. He's recruited an army of people who don't fear death to proclaim the good news that Jesus triumphed over death. And should we die, we will rise again more powerful and then return with Jesus to crush Satan under your feet. Right? That is the great fight. So in light of that battle, you have to ask yourself, whose side are you on? 
right? This is a call to join the battle. Now, we live in an activist culture. Everyone's trying to recruit you for their cause. If you're not angry, you're not paying attention. If you're not for us, you're against us. And you have all different parties all trying to tell you that you need to sign up for our cause. But Jesus is telling you right now that you need to sign up for his. He says in verse 23, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. You're either for me or against me. You either gather with me or you scatter. And, and think about that word scatter. If you were a shepherd and you see the flock scattering, and you just stand by and think, that's interesting. You are derelict in your duty. If you are a lifeguard and you see a five-year-old just splashing and drowning and you just say, huh, that's interesting, you're culpable for his death. Jesus is saying, you can't just sit on the sideline. Remember the group of people who just said, give us a few more miracles and then we'll think about it? Jesus says, if you're not for me, you're against me. If you're not gathering with me, you are scattering Right? Jesus is going to come back and he's going to reclaim his kingdom. He's going to take out his enemies. And he's going to use his redeemed saints to be a part of that cosmic struggle. Now sometimes it can be really hard to, to see the enemy as enemies. I think about the people in the audience who Jesus is talking to. You're either for me or against me. It's me or the Pharisees. Who are going to choose? These Pharisees probably circumcised their baby boys. Right? These Pharisees taught them the scriptures, hosted the synagogues. For years, they looked up to the Pharisees as their spiritual leaders. And yet, here comes Jesus, and he's saying, it's them or me. You're either, either I'm on the side of Satan or they're on the side of Satan. They've made it clear there is no middle ground. You're either for me or against me. And if you're for me, I'm for you. If you're against me, I'm against you. There is no middle ground. Those nice people who tell you truth that's contrary to Scripture those people who introduce you to false religious teaching, the people who dole your spiritual awareness, those friends who solicit you to do behavior that you shouldn't be doing, the person you're dating who's trying to get you to sleep with them. Yep, the Lord's Prayer. They're all against you because they're against God. And when you join them, right? When you join them, you're joining the enemy. And you can say, well, God, you don't understand. I'm actually a secret agent. I'm trying to gather intel. I need to learn how the other side lives so that I can fight them better. God doesn't need intelligence. <laughs> and he knows your heart. So here's a question for you, okay? I'm asking you in all seriousness, whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? In the field of battle, it's pretty clear whose side everybody is on, right? 
if somebody were to look at your life, what would they say about the side you've joined? What would the people closest to you say, yeah, he's on the Lord's side or he's not on the Lord's side? And, and don't put it in terms of he's not on the Lord's side. We'll just say it like it is. He's on Satan's side. You ultimately have to give a choice, right? And this is the call of the gospel, right? With the church of Laodicea, you can't be lukewarm. God wants extreme commitment. And to join the cause, people don't join the army because they like the food and the community. They don't join the army because they like the look and the uniform and, and because of the pay. They join the army because they know that they're going to be called to fight. Fight against sin, in this case, right? Fight against your sin, the sin of others. To proclaim the gospel, to build the church. The whole project of kingdom work, right, and becoming part of the kingdom is to adapt and embrace and promote the kingdom's objectives, which is the king's objectives. There is no middle ground, right? Choose this day whom you will serve. Before God asks the question, whose side am I on? And then I pray that you'll choose to join the right side. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come before you, and I, I pray for anyone here who perhaps lives a life of ambiguous allegiance, that this will be the day where they decide to firmly plant their flag with you, to declare themselves citizens of the kingdom to come, and to fight for that kingdom. I pray for those who might have been compromised by the enemy, that they will see his work for what it is and turn from it, and that in faith, they will seek the kingdom to come and live accordingly. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.